How's everybody doing this morning? All good? Um, does this smell like a skunk in here? I know that's a weird question to start with, but apparently we had a skunk issue uh, right next to this door, and yesterday the place reeked. So uh, I keep, I have, I'm very suggestible, so I keep thinking I smell skunk. Does, are you all good over here? I'm worried about you folks particularly. Is it all good? Okay. Now you all think you smell skunk. See how it works? It's not your neighbor, in case you're wondering. Okay. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, as most of you know, we're in a series called It Starts With Ten, in which we're l- looking at the Ten Commandments that are recorded here in this particular text. Uh, this week is week three, and if you missed either the first two weeks, I highly encourage you to go online and do some catch-up, because those first two commandments, the rest build on all of them. So you're going to want to go and, um, and, and uh, learn about those. But one of the things that we've learned so far in the study, and it's something that a lot of people overlook, uh, is that God gave these commandments to an already rescued people. Uh, he gave these to his people after they left Egypt. Uh, they weren't, the Israelites weren't set free from slavery by keeping these commandments. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an earn your way out of bondage kind of a deal. They were saved by the grace uh, and power of God, an already rescued people. But their freedom was a new experience uh, for them. Uh, as slaves, Egyptian law regulated their daily lives for almost 400 years. And now here they were, loved and liberated by God, out on their own and wondering how were they going to keep going? How were, they were, how were they going to survive as a nation? How were they going to live together in safe, sustainable community? And that's really where the Ten Commandments come into play. God gives these to his people to help them see and understand how healthy human life and relationships and community, how it all works, how it's supposed to be, how it's meant to be. And so God says by way of introduction in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Next, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then commandment three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, uh, I gotta, I've got to confess, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a stickler when it comes to the whole issue of names. All my life I've had to deal with people making fun of mine or just totally butchering it. And, you know, with a last name like Kohlbacher, what what do you expect? You know, from the time I was a kid, I had to deal with people making fun of it, being teased about it. When When I got to high school and into college, whenever my picture made the sports section of the newspaper, it was always misspelled and pronunciation, well, forget about it. That was a bigger nightmare. I've been called Nolbacher, Kohlbacher, Kohlbucher. Nookerbooker, Knockerbocker, Knickerbocker, Hornlocker, Kohlsnocker, uh, all of them, all the above, you know, and I'm glad my mother didn't name me Horatio. Uh, <clears throat> that would look bad on paper, you know, people, Horatio Kohlsnocker, is that right, you know, it would have been brutal. Years ago when I met a, a lovely young woman named Margie Gates, isn't that a sweet name? Uh, I was like, there's no way this girl's ever going to marry me. Go from having a nice, pleasant name like Gates to Kohlbacher. It sounds like you get a mouthful of marbles, you know. But uh, my amazing good looks, brilliance, and charm uh, overcame the name problem and uh, sealed the deal. She fell madly in love and married me anyway. So all that to say is, if you misspell, misuse, mispronounce, make fun of my name, I don't care. Go for it. It doesn't bother me. And so... You know, when I read Exodus 20, verse 7, and God basically says, you shall not misuse my name, part of me wants to say, God, what's the big deal? You know, 
It's just a name. Is God so hypersensitive that he can't handle somebody misspelling it or mispronouncing it once in a while? I mean, if I can handle it, uh, why can't he? Why is the creator of the universe so concerned about what people do with his name? Well, here's the thing. Misspelling and mispronunciation is really not the issue. The issue is misuse. Well, what does that mean? So I want to talk about that with you over the next few minutes because it's really not something that most people think it is. So what is the basic commandment? Well, first things first, keep in mind the historical context, right? Again, the Israelites have just come out of ancient Egypt, been about three months. Uh, they, um, it was a, the Egyptian culture was a culture in which idol worship was pervasive. And we, we talked about this last week, how the Egyptians had this massive list of gods and goddesses that they worshiped and sacrificed to, uh, scholars estimate, upwards of 8,000 deities, most of which uh, were depicted by way of an idol. And I showed you these idols uh, from ancient Egypt. Hapis, the god of strength and fertility, looks like a bull. Then there's Osiris, king of the underworld. Horus, the falcon-headed sky god. And then Hatmahit, the fish goddess. And uh, these were four of the most, uh, most popular, really, but they were just four four of thousands of idols, and every one of them had a name. And so God, as he takes his people from, uh, out from this culture, he's, he's kind of making the point that, that he wasn't just one deity among many. You know, he, he alone was and is the only true God, the creator of all things, including bulls and falcons and, and fish and human beings. He's the creator of all things. And he presses that point when he introduces these commandments because he uses his proper name. You know, the one he gave to Moses in Exodus 2 when Moses asked for one. And so God says in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And remember, in Scripture, God's name is always represented, his proper name always represented by the English word Lord in capital letters. It represents the Hebrew term Yahweh, to be verb. It can be translated, I am who I am or I be who I be. Uh, uh, being itself. The name uh, emphasizes God's divine nature, his self-existence, how he is the eternal source of all things. The Hebrew term we translate God in verse two is the term El, and it carries the idea of power and might. So understand, God's name uh, is more than, than just a title. It communicates truth about him. Literally, God says to his people, I am Yahweh, The I am, the eternal, self-existing, all-powerful being, your God. The one who created the world. The one who established you as a nation from the seed of Abraham. The one who uh, ignited the burning bush. The one who sent you a deliverer. Who empowered the plagues on Egypt. Who parted the Red Sea. I am Yahweh. Who graciously rescued you and brought you to freedom. And who loves you with an everlasting love. So in a way... You know, God's name reveals not only his personal nature, but also his work uh, and his reputation in the ancient Near Eastern community, who, who he is and what he's done. To put it another way, the God of Israel was no lightweight idol carved from wood, stone, or clay. Unlike the deities of, of Egypt, Yahweh supernaturally intervened in history and he proved himself. He made a powerful name for himself. The surrounding nations all heard what went down in Egypt. They heard how he is the one true, the one true God worthy of worship and reverent obedience. And therefore, misusing his name in some way, shape, or form would be disrespectful and irreverent. So the question again becomes, well, what, is it, what does it mean to misuse his name? 
And I got to tell you, you know, the NIV translation, that's the translation we use, the New, uh, New International Living Translation, oh, no, New International Version, excuse me. Um, the translators, uh, in my opinion, uh, have let us down here in verse 7 because they fail to reflect a specific and I think a pretty important Hebrew term. Uh, literally, the Hebrew reads this way. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, for the misuse. That's how it reads in the Hebrew scriptures. And the word that's left out in our NIV is the Hebrew term for take, that we, tr- uh, we translate take. It's the Hebrew word nasah. And it means to lift up. It means to carry. And the term for misuse is the term lishav. Basically means emptiness or to no avail or meaningless uh, it was a term applied to um, something unsubstantial, worthless, fake, uh, in, uh, uh, insignificant. In fact, um, the psalmist applies this term to the worship of idols in Psalm 24. So here's my, here's my Reiki, personal Reiki translation, okay? God says to the people, I, Yahweh, your God, am not a false, worthless idol. Don't treat me or represent me as such. Don't lift up or carry my name in a meaningless way. Do not malign or ruin my reputation in the world. That's essentially what he's saying. And so uh, that's the basic theology and, and, and linguistics behind the commandment. But what about the practical application? You know, how is this commandment violated? And it seems to me there are a number of ways God's name can be misused. And the first way is through irreverent language. And uh, this is what most people think about when they, when they hear this command, that it's some kind of divine injunction against cursing, you know, using God's holy name to express our rather unholy feelings. And I mean, you know, let's face it, for whatever reason, people in our culture today do not hesitate to ask God to damn a whole lot of things. Or text, you know, oh my God, to express, you know, surprise at something um, or being alarmed about something. Um, along with that, Jesus Christ is used as a vulgar expletive with some people seeming to believe that Jesus' middle name begins with an H. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know what I'm saying, yeah? Okay. I don't get that. I don't know where that's from. But um, it's kind of weird, really. But. As I was thinking about all this this week, this whole name deal, you know, I thought it's interesting. Do you know where, do you have any idea where the, our English word God comes from? Probably not, because the fact is no one does. As best we can tell, the word is a relatively recent European invention and uh, was never used in any original ancient biblical manuscript written in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. Neither was it ever used in um, early Latin translations. Scholarship's best guess is that our English word God is derived from the ancient Persian term goda, koda, meaning king or master. You say, Ray, what's the point? The point is that our English word God is not the proper name of the creator of the universe who gave his people these commandments. However, in our culture, the word God has come to represent him, and therefore, in my opinion, to use the word in a vulgar fashion uh, is an inappropriate and irreverent. Now, for the, those of you who know me well, you, you guys know, I, I'm not a verbal prude. I'm not very prudy about anything. I'm not easily offended by rough language. Uh, there's nothing someone can say in front of me that I haven't said myself. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't, I didn't you know, have all this language I was supposed to use and not use. I, I used to have what we called in North Jersey a sewer mouth. Dude, you got a sewer mouth. That's what we used to say to people. And, uh, and so I know old habits die hard. And uh, 
And so when I'm around people who use profanity as a normal means of communication, I don't freak out. I don't get all judgmental. You know, I don't get all bent out of shape, bent out of shape about it. But I will say this. When, when someone uses the word God flippantly or takes Jesus' name and uses it profanely or as a punctuation mark in a sentence, I'm really more sad and hurt than anything else because through their careless language, that person is implying that, that my God is worthless and that, and, and that Jesus, who changed the course of human history and changed the course of my life, is insignificant. Um, in essence, it's an assault on God's existence, his power, his person, his dignity, his, his love, and his grace. And, you know, there's no re- respect or honor given, and that, that's kind of offensive. But understand something. Irreverent language is ultimately not what this commandment is about. It's not what the commandment is about because the profane use of God's name wasn't an issue in ancient Israel. <laughs> Out of honor and respect, rarely did people ever even speak his name, let alone speak it profanely. So this commandment was not so much about irreverent language as it was about irresponsible language. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, agreements and, and deals were sealed by taking vows and pledging oaths. And uh, with the Israelites now a free nation, uh, such things would become a critical element in, in, in social matters of business and, and commerce and law and family and, and treaties. And so swearing vows and oaths uh, were, were part of everyday life, and they served as, as binding verbal commitments Bible and, and contracts. And making them in the name of God was a common way of expressing the, serious, uh, the seriousness of the commitment and the seriousness of the, of the parties who were involved in making that commitment. So taking an oath uh, or a vow in God's name uh, in the ancient Near East wasn't, wasn't wrong, it wasn't forbidden. The problem arose when people would swear an oath in God's name and then would break it and not give a rip that they broke it. God explained it this way to the people uh, over in Leviticus. He said, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God, I am Lord, I am Yahweh. In other words, God's saying, look, don't take a vow or make a commitment in my name that you don't intend on keeping because when you break it, you dishonor me. See, God is, God is holy, God is righteous, God is true. And any use of his name that reflects unholiness, unrighteousness, or dishonesty is offensive to him. Now, despite this commandment, uh, violating commitments became commonplace in Israel. By the, ta- by the time Jesus started his ministry, biblical teaching on oaths had become twisted and abused. It was ri- ridiculous, really. Religious leaders uh, had created a myriad of loopholes that allowed an individual to avoid keeping their word on any number of things. And so uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenged oath-taking not because it's inherently evil, but because it had degenerated into a clever way of ducking responsibility. People would, they'd swear all over the place. They'd swear by heaven. They'd swear up by earth. They'd swear on the life of the king. They'd swear on the life of their children. They'd swear on anything and everything in an effort to avoid mentioning God. That way, they sounded serious, but they, they didn't really have to tell the truth or live up to their their vows, they, they had some wiggle room. And so Jesus comes along and he says to the people, look, don't, don't swear at all either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You get what he's saying? Basically Jesus is saying, you can't, 
He says, understand, you can't keep God out of, transa- out of your transactions. God's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. He hears everything. And so every promise, every vow, every commitment you make, you make in his presence, whether you, you like it or not, it, it involves him and involves his name, whether you like it or not, whether you mention his name or not. And therefore, all vows, all promises, all commitments are sacred. So Jesus says, keep them. Have integrity. Keep, keep your word. Ensure to break your word, to break a vow, is wrong. And to break your word if, you're, if you've invoked God's name in the process is not only wrong, but it is specifically disrespectful and dishonoring to God himself. And, you know, people, even Christians, do it all the time, Right? I mean, couples walk into church facilities like this and make marriage vows in the name of God and then they go out and for the sake of personal desire, selfish convenience, violate those vows more than ever before. On a more informal basis, we, um, you know, we swear to God about this, we swear on the Bible about that, we use God as, a, as our witness to affirm and, and seal commitments and yet more often than not, we, we're willing to break those commitments at the drop of a hat. But make no mistake about it, when it comes to violating the commitments our commitments and using God's name in an empty, worthless manner as if he's nothing is a serious violation of the third commandment. It's irresponsible language. And so is the use of God's name uh, as a marketing tool. I mean, how many times down through the centuries has, God, has God's name been tragically invoked to endorse the self-serving schemes of greedy men and women claiming to represent him? from the creative selling of indulgences in the Middle Ages to the Holocaust in Europe to indefensible justification of racism and bigotry to the sleazy, unscrupulous hucksterism of religious TV personalities. The exploitation of God's name has brought and continues to bring uh, discredit to him and to the good news of his love and his grace. It's as if God's just a big joke. Irresponsible language also comes in the form of false teaching, whether it's, it's a blatant denial of biblical truth or a subtle compromising of that truth for, truth for the sake of harmony and tolerance. Listen, in our post-Christian, post-modern America, let's not, kid, let's not kid ourselves. There exists a tension between biblical Christianity and cultural Christianity. In other words, there's a temptation for those who call themselves Christians to ironically abandon what Christ actually taught and stood for. There's an inclination to replace righteousness with relativism. The Ten Commandments become ten suggestions. Moral absolutes be, become mere possibilities, and scriptural authority gets replaced by cultural ideologies. Faith? Well, faith becomes less about commitment and much more about convenience. Do you guys know that in America today, 80% of existing churches are plateaued or in decline? And I would suggest there's no such thing as a plateau. You're either going up or you're going down. 80% of existing churches are in decline. On average, 3,500 churches close their doors every 12 months. Why? I'd suggest because most of them have lost their spiritual relevance. Many have abandoned the truth and message of grace and slipped back into a religious works narrative that is absolutely debilitating and destructive. They've added such and such to Jesus. Whenever anyone says Jesus plus this makes you a Christian, be careful. It's Jesus plus nothing. 
Many have forgotten who God is, what he's done for us, the kind of people he's called us to be, what he's called us to do. To a great extent, God has been reshaped into a finite, wishy-washy, good-natured savant who has no real plan of redemption and no clear guidance for his people. And the result is is a careless application of God's name and a misrepresentation of who he is and what he wants to do in this world of ours. And when all that happens, when the truth of God gets replaced by subjective uh, feelings and personal opinions, then, then the very basis of the gospel, the good news, is undermined, and the door is, is swung open to all kinds of empty religious ritualism, uh, contentless mysticism, and rampant idolatry. See, the violation of the third commandment isn't just about irresponsible language, it's about irresponsible living. And as we've noted from the start, God gave these commands to to his people so that they might live good, safe, healthy lives. Lives that that set them apart from the pagan, idolatrous, violent, and amoral cultures of the ancient Near East. The character of their lives governed by these directives would represent the character of God to those around them. They would be men and women of honor and, and, and respect, peaceful, not violent, faithful, not adulterous, honest, not deceitful, generous, not greedy, people who were grateful for who God was and all that he had graciously done for them. In the truest sense of the word, they would nasa, they would take, they would carry God's name, not in vain, but in such a way as to represent his reality and his power, his truth, his grace, his goodness, and they'd carry it to the world. To do the opposite, to claim to claim to be God's people and then live irresponsibly and ignore what God says is right and good and healthy and true is a definitive violation of the third commandment. In essence, it's a refusal to worship God in obedience uh, as he deserves and ultimately to misrepresent him to our world as if he's not real, as if he's irrelevant. And God doesn't take that lightly. I mean, don't miss the fact we're told in verse 7 the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So let's not beat around the bush. Here's the direct application for us, the church. If you call yourself a Christian, if you nasa, if you take, if you carry the name of Jesus with you, if you identify yourself as one of God's people, to misuse his name means in practical everyday terms that you treat God unsubstantially. For all intents and purposes, it's as if he doesn't really exist for you on a daily basis. He's irrelevant. You ignore him. You don't don't take seriously what he says is true and right and good and healthy for you. He's no more a player in your life than, than a worthless carved wooden idol sitting on a pagan altar. Just irrelevant. You say you're a believer. You, you, you take the name of Jesus but few people around you seem to take God seriously. Perhaps it's because you don't take him seriously. Maybe the culture doesn't take God seriously because we in the church don't take him seriously. Is that possible? I think it is. Uh, This Friday I was driving in to the office and uh, I had the radio on and I was listening to, you know, what I normally listen to, church organ music, and um, <laughs> see, you guys got it, the first service, man, they're like, what? you know, uh, no, I was listening to 93.1, Chicago's rock station, 
and it was cranked up, and uh, I heard a group called Cracker. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Cracker. Alternative rock band. They were singing the song Teen Angst, uh, subtitled What the World Needs Now. And I, I don't endorse all the lyrics of that song, obviously, if you were to hear it, but uh, there were some lyrics in the song that made me, made me think as I was listening. Like, uh, here, here's some of them. Uh, the singer says, I don't know what the world may need, but I'm sure that it starts with me. And that's a wisdom I've laughed at. What the world needs now is another folk singer. Yeah, like I need a hole in, in my head. And I heard that, I, I kind of laughed, but I, I had this, this commandment rolling around in my brain. And I'm thinking, well, that's an interesting song. And that's in, some interesting thoughts there. And I'm thinking, okay, in light of this commandment, what does the world really need? And I'm pretty sure it starts with me. And I'm quite convinced it doesn't need another Christian out in the community saying I believe in God and living as if I don't. I mean, the world needs that like it needs a hole in the head, right? And so what does the world need? And what I think it needs is um, to know, the, to know the, the one true God, to know that he's real, to know what he is like and to know what he's done and to experience his love and his grace and his goodness and his rescue. And the way that the world, the way that our community will come to know and experience those things, more specifically come to know and experience him, is through us. That's how it works. Through us has already rescued people. We who nasa, who carry his name and live healthy, honorable, faithful, peaceful, honest, generous, gracious lives. Demonstrating every single day, not only, not only through our language, but but through our actions that God is real and that he matters and that he alone is worthy of our worship and our obedience. Understand, you may not like it, but understand, through you and me, the world will draw its conclusion about the God and the Savior we say we believe in. So here's the big question, church. If if you're a believer who has been rescued and, and has experienced the love and grace of God, and you, you've, you, you, you've, you've taken his name, you call yourself a Christian, how are you treating God on a daily basis? As if he's relevant or irrelevant? And how are you speaking about him? How are you representing him to family, friends, and colleagues? Not just through your language, but through your life. Do you live as if God is the all-powerful creator of this universe or merely the insignificant figment of your religious imagination? Which is it? Which is it? Because here's the deal. God takes the matter seriously. I mean, he does because he takes his name seriously. He takes his reputation seriously. And he says to his people, I am not a worthless idol. And you know that. You know that. So don't treat me Don't represent me as such to the world. I am the Lord, your God, your rescuer, the one who loves you, the the one who has extended grace to you. Do not take and misuse my name. And my prayer is that we won't. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, as I I read the story of, of your people, the Israelites, um, I recognize that it, the more things change, the more they remain the same. 
Because just as your people, just as they were wandering in the wilderness, so we are today wandering in the world. We are broken, um, imperfect men and women. We are those who claim to know you and claim to worship you, who take your name and yet uh, represent you in ways that's dishonorable and hurtful to you. And so I pray that we would, we would think about this commandment, not just, it's not just about the language we use. That's, that's the easy way out. The bigger question, the harder question is how are we representing you to our world? How are you in our lives? Do we, we treat you as if you're insignificant and irrelevant? Or do we honor you every day? And I, I pray, God, that you would help us to be honest about that. It's easy to walk through life and ignore the questions that are hard to answer. Um, but if we call ourselves your people, then we need to decide how we are carrying your name to our world, to our friends. We represent you. Our goodness and our grace and our love represents you, our God, who is the same. Our character represents your character. And I pray that we would do so honorably, that through our lives we would point people to you. And so we not only... Um, we not only say that we worship you, but we actually live for you as an act of worship. We love you this morning. Be with us, strengthen us, and empower us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?